<clears throat> I was looking back my notes from when I preached earlier and, and discovered it was back in, I believe, August 8, when I had, had preached about uh, Elisha's call, when Elisha was called to be God's prophet. And I didn't realize it had been that long, but it's, it's been almost, I guess, about eight weeks. And I'd like to, again, thinking about Elisha's life and ministry this morning, and I'm going to be turning to 2 Kings again, thinking about 2 Kings just a bit. The, the author of First and 2 Kings is unknown. Some believe it was the prophet Jeremiah, because the style is similar to uh, the book of Jeremiah. But no one knows for sure who that was. Uh, they do say either Jeremiah or one of his contemporaries is most likely who wrote First uh, and Second Kings. The purpose of First and Second Kings, it's a, it's a selective covenant history. It's, sometimes it can be confusing in reading through First Kings on exactly what happened when or where and comparing that with Chronicles, or I should say I can get confused with it and figuring out what happened where. But the reason for that is it's a selective history. It's written to explain to the Jewish exiles the reasons for the fall of Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. It's to, to show why they fell and went into exile, just like God had told them they would if they were not faithful. It's the books are written to show God's faithfulness and to show the people's failure to keep a covenant. Second Kings shows that God controls history. God's prophets play a large role in First and Second Kings because God uses them to remind the kings of their covenant responsibility. And the difference between kings and prophets, I'm going to read a, a quote from Ray Stedman. I thought he said this very well. It is significant that God never spoke to the nation through a king. The king's role was to govern and administer justice. The life and character of the kingdom was a reflection of the life and character of the king. But when God wanted to speak to the nation, to challenge the nation, and to call the nation back to its founding principles, he sent a prophet. That's a quote from Ray Stedman. <clears throat> so the prophet was to, to call the kings back to their responsibility to the covenant God. You know, I was thinking, too, about the Elisha was... God selected Elisha, told Elijah to go and anoint Elisha to be his successor. And those two men were very different, if you think about it. Elijah was a man of the wilderness. Elijah lived separate from people out in the wilderness, and he would come into civilization to speak on a, on a prophetic mission, and he was dressed in rough camel hair robe, and he was known for stressing law, judgment, and repentance. Elisha, on the other hand, was a farmer when he was called. You remember Elijah walks up 
behind him and throws his mantle over his shoulders and keeps on walking. Elisha left everything and followed him. So Elisha was a farmer when God called him, but he moved to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and lived with the people. Elisha's ministry emphasized grace, light, and hope. Some have compared Elijah with John the Baptist and Elisha with Jesus. Others say both of them show Jesus. I think those are probably both correct. What I wanted to note, though, with Elijah and Elisha, that they were very different men. They lived in different settings, and yet God worked through both of them. Too often, I think everyone should be just like me or do what I do, but God works through very different people. For his glory. I'm going to read Second uh, Kings chapter 3. I'm going to start with reading verses 1 through 3 and then pause. Second Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now Jehoram was the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeremiah the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. You know, the writer of Second Kings doesn't waste a lot of ink on the summary of Jehoram's reign. Twelve years. And the summary is, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not as bad as his father, but he was evil. It's a sad summary. I'm going to read the rest of, uh, of the chapter. 2 Kings 3, verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the king Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel 
and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, remember this is Jehoram, the one who the summary is he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you and your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree, and stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Now it happened in the morning, when the grain offering was offered, that suddenly water came by the way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red, as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites, so they fled before them. And they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Ker-Hereseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. <clears throat> now, after reading that last verse, I'd like to be able to tell you that the, arm, the three armies were so horrified, they were horrified by the human sacrifice on the wall. But I'd like to be able to tell you they were so horrified that all three of them turned from idol worship. But that's not the case. In spite of seeing where that leads, history shows us that they continued in idol worship. There's a number of reasons I think that Jehoram wanted to go the southern route to attack Moab. Let me back up just a, just a tad. Um, Ahab, Jehoram's father, had uh, when Ahab died is when 
Mesha, the king of Moab, rebelled. Said, now's the perfect time. Ahab died, and his son Ahaziah was actually king before Jehoram. But it was for less than two years. And Ahaziah was pretty lax and didn't do anything about the fact that this king had rebelled, that Moab rebelled, and he did nothing about it. He only lived, he reigned a year and a half, two years, I don't know exactly, and he fell through the lattice in the upper part of his house and died. That's when Jehoram becomes king, and one of the first things he does is he plans to make sure he's getting these 100,000 lambs and the 100,000 um, the wool from a hundred thousand rams again. He doesn't want to be missing that. There's a couple reasons probably that he chose a southern route. Uh, one would be that to go the northern route into Moab, he would have had to cross the Arnon River Gorge, and that is a three-mile wide gorge, and it's 2,300 feet deep. So it's kind of like the Near East Grand Canyon. It's, it would have been really quite an undertaking to take the armies through there and it'd be easily defended from the other side. It was also heavily fortified. So instead, he asked Jehoshaphat if he can come through Judah and go to the, and circle through Judah, go down along the western side of the Dead Sea, around the bottom end of the Dead Sea, into Edom, and attack Moab from the south. Now, he accomplished a couple things that way. One, it's not as heavily fortified. He figured they're not ready for it. Two, uh, Edom was subject to Judah at this time. So if he can get Judah to go with him, then he's got another army, and he gets Edom as well. So now there's three armies instead of one, and he's going where he thinks they're going to surprise them. Sounds like a really good plan, doesn't it? Well, he gets down there, and as you saw reading through this, they run out of water. Apparently, they were planning on water, and I've forgotten the name of the river that runs through the valley where they were. Apparently, they were planning on having water there, and there was none. It was dry, completely dry. So here they are in this predicament. One interesting note on the uh, red water the, they say the soil in that area tints the water so it's really reddish. Then you add the angle of the sun early morning hitting that and the Moabites thinking there can't be any water there because it didn't rain. So they assume that it's blood. A lot of, uh, a lot of things coming together here in this passage. <clears throat> what I'd like to do is just I want to make some observations. After reading this 2 Kings chapter 3, I want to make a few observations and and just note some things here. The first thing, observation I'd like to make is that we have a tendency to repeat our mistakes. You say, Nate, where do you get that? In verse 7, with Jehoshaphat When he's asked to join him, will you go with me and fight Moab? He said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. That's almost word for word what 
Jehoshaphat said to Jehoram's father, Ahab, years earlier. And that, I'll just turn quickly to Second uh, Chronicles 19. In Second Chronicles 19, in verse 2, well, what happened is he had gone and fought with, with Ahab, and Jehoshaphat was almost killed. Ahab didn't dress in his kingly robes, and Jehoshaphat did, and he was almost killed. And when he comes back safely, then Jehu, son of Hanani the cedar, went out to see him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. And he goes on to say that he has done good in removing idol worship and, and this kind of thing. But here he is re soundly rebuked for helping a wicked king, uh, Joram's father. And this happens a second time, actually. Well, and he, he had also allied himself with Ahab in having his son married to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. So now they're, now they're family, and there's a connection there. There's a reason that they can hope to have assistance from him. There's a, there's a marriage here. So he joined them in fighting the Syrians, and then he also allied himself with Ahab's wicked son, Ahaziah, who reigned for just that short time. And 2 Chronicles 20 is where you can see that. 2 Chronicles 20, I'm just going to read 35 to 37. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezon-Geber. But Eliezer, the son of Dodava and of Marsha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. The ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. So God destroyed the ships that he made in his alliance with Ahaziah because he allied himself with a, with a wicked king. And so now you have a third time that you have a wicked king Someone who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, is asked to join him. And Jehoshaphat says, yes, I'll do it. And this is the brother of the last guy he was in trouble for helping. But he makes the same mistake again. You ever find yourself making the same mistake again? I do. You don't need to raise your head, but I'll, I'll raise mine. I do. We have a tendency to do the same thing again. I'm grateful that, that, that God doesn't reject us. God didn't reject Jehoshaphat, though he did the same thing three times. And he was rebuked each time, but he does it again. So we have a tendency to repeat our mistakes. Another observation, God doesn't force himself on us. I find it very interesting that, well, while, while I'm, I'm looking at the life of Elisha, I'm struck with the fact that you run into so many other people with how intertwined our lives are with other people. They're meshed together. 
But God doesn't force himself on us. See that in verse 11. Let me turn back to 2 Kings. So Elisha was there. Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So the servant of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Elisha, God's representative in the country at that time, was present. He was available, but he remained silent. The armies were in deep trouble. They ran out of water, and they had animals following them to feed the army. They, were at, they had no water for the animals, for themselves. They were done if they didn't get water. They were all going to die, and just they had walked right to Moab. Here's Moab on the border. Moab, by the way, during this seven-day trek through the desert, discovers their plan, and they're all lined up on the edge of the border waiting. But God didn't force himself on them. He waited until Jehoshaphat said, isn't there, someone, isn't there a prophet of the Lord? Let's inquire of the Lord. You know, he made the same mistake three times, but he knew what to do when he found himself in trouble. When he realized his mistake, he turned to the Lord. And that's what you and I need to do. Because we will make mistakes. So Elisha's silent until they ask for him. Apparently the kings didn't even know that Elisha was there. Uh, Jehoshaphat didn't, obviously. He asks, and it's one of the king's servants who says, yeah, Elisha is. But he was there and available. And they were ready to seek the Lord. Third observation. There's a tendency to blame God or other people for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Isn't it true that often I can dig a hole for myself? I'll overload myself and then say, oh no, I'm overloaded. God, why would you do this to me? When I've done it to myself. But there's a tendency to blame God for the circumstances we find ourselves in. See that in verse 13, where the king of Israel blames the Lord for calling these three kings together. Whose idea was it? Who called the kings together? It was the wicked king of Israel. The one who was serving idols and the Lord, he was trying to do both at the same time. He had somewhat reestablished worship, sacrifices, worshiping the Lord, but he was also sacrificing to idols. He was trying to do both, and he was just as dangerous to the country as, it, as his father, who was even worse in his idol worship. recognize when I caused the situation I'm in, but seek the Lord's help. Fourth observation, when I receive clear direction from God, he will often ask me to take a step of faith. I find that in verse 16. 
when Elisha says, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you will not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley will be filled with water. So here's these armies. They're dying of thirst. They're dehydrated. And he says, dig ditches. Who wants to go dig a ditch even if, you're, if you've got plenty of fluids? It's hard work. And that's a hot climate. But these men, these armies dug ditches so they'd have a way to retain the water that came through. An act of faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So he asked, he told them to dig ditches as an act of faith to prepare for what God is going to do. What if they hadn't dug ditches? What do you think would have happened? Would the water still have come? I think so, because God said it would come. But if they weren't prepared, probably that water would have gone on through. They wouldn't have gained much benefit from it. But they believed God and they dug ditches. They were willing to do hard work as an act of faith. Often, when I receive clear direction from God, He will ask me to take a step of faith. Are you going through a dry time? Will you by faith Keep seeking God's direction and keep preparing your heart for what God will do. For what God will do in the future. To look to Him expectantly. He's going to do something. I'm going to, by faith, prepare for what God will do. Fifth observation. God was at work even when they couldn't tell that anything was happening. Take that from verse 17 where the Lord said, you won't see rain, you won't see wind, but the valley is going to be filled with water. God was at work. They couldn't hear anything, they couldn't see anything, and so often, I think that's where I find myself. I may wonder, God, what's going on? Aren't you going to do something about this situation? We need you. And what I don't know is God is at work. I can't see it. I can't hear it. But God's working. Where did that water come from? Scripture says it came by the way of Eden. Edom. It came from the direction of Edom. We don't know where it came from. Was there a rainstorm somewhere that they couldn't see or hear? Maybe. That's what some commentators think. Was there... Did God just open up a spring from the, the, vast, the massive reservoirs underground? Maybe. I don't know how God did it, but God sent water. He was at work, even when they couldn't tell that anything was happening. And something bigger than they could have imagined happened. And that's my sixth observation. God gave far more than they needed. They were just looking at that point to survive. They didn't want to die of thirst 
or from the Moabites killing them while they're dehydrated. God could have just sent enough water for them and their animals and they could get limp back home. But he didn't. God gave them much more than they needed. He gave them water for them, for their animals. He gave them red water that fooled their enemies. On top of that, he said it's a, it's a simple matter in the sight of the Lord to do that. So he's also going to give them their enemies, the Moabites, into their hand. He'll give them victory. So God gave far more than they needed. I forgot to mention that was verse 18. <clears throat> Seventh observation is God's provision arrived during their daily worship. Take that from verse 20. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by the way of Eden and the land was filled with water. God's provision arrived during their daily worship. They, each day, they would, give a, they would sacrifice a lamb as a burnt offering. They had a grain offering and a drink offering. And this says it arrived at the time for the grain offering. The grain offering was to worship God and to acknowledge. It was an acknowledgement of God's provision for them. And isn't it interesting timing that right while they are acknowledging God's provision for them with the grain offering, here comes God's provision of water. I don't think it's an accident, a coincidence. But God's timing is impeccable. And he sent it. Just when when they're being grateful for God's provision. Eighth observation is God answers those who humble themselves and seek Him. That's kind of the overview of this chapter. God answers those who humble themselves and seek Him. Second Chronicles 7.14 if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I think two of Psalm 37, verses 2 and 3. It says, The steps of a good man are ordered or established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Can you, you ever picture God delighting in you? God delights when we are obeying him. When we are living a life looking to God for direction, He delights in our way. There are more things we could note about this. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to, in conclusion, I want to note two things that I want to learn from 
from 2 Kings chapter 3. One, I want to learn to seek God's direction before I act. To make seeking his direction just a normal part of life. And second, if I find that I've run ahead of God, I want to repent and seek his direction with a heart that's willing to be steered, turned to where God wants it. Dave, I look to you to close as you see that. May the Lord bless you.